I've been reading a, um, a book by a guy named Greg Boyd recently. And uh, he wrote a book that is titled The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Referring to the idea that we have throughout the Old Testament, you know, the Hebrews, the way that they saw God was he was the one who fights for them. He's the one who provides land for them. He's the one who protects them. He's the warrior God who keeps us safe. And then came Jesus, who instead of fighting the Romans, was killed by them. And so it's this this contrast that we see between what we see in Jesus in the New Testament and what we apparently see in the Old Testament. We see the crucifixion of the warrior God. And so the the whole idea in the book is that the way that we find harmony between the New Testament and the Old Testament and the way it seems to be, it seems to change, right? God goes from this God who is all interested in protecting this one small group of people to suddenly being the incarnate son of God who dies for the sins of the whole world. And how do you find consistency in that? Is it that God changed? Is it that we are wrong? Can we we trust what scripture says about God if it seems to suggest that God changes? And so he goes through and he writes a, a long book that I'm just now getting into. But the thrust is that even the Old Testament or the New Testament, no matter what you look at, no matter what passage of scripture you're reading, it has to be read and interpreted, keeping the fact that God died and sacrificed himself rather than conquer when he came to the earth. Jesus did not come to kill or destroy the enemy. He came to save the enemy. And so whenever we read a passage of scripture that we don't understand or it's difficult to figure out or the meaning is not clear, we have to think to ourselves, what does the crucified son of God, what does the crucified warrior God have to say in this passage of scripture? And so we we see these ways that everything in scripture points either back to the cross or forward to the cross. So we see, we see Paul at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, the beginning of the passage we read today, he says, imitate me. And so for Paul to look to an entire church and say, hey, when you get this letter, remember all the things that I did and you should do all the things that I did. You should be like me. I don't know about you, but if I were to stand up here this morning and say, the point of my sermon this morning is I want all of you to be like me. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. I don't know if I want you all to have my flaws. <laughs> I don't know if my, uh, my virtues outweigh them all. <laughs> and yet that's what Paul says, right? And so I, I don't think it means that Paul says, well, you know that thorn in the flesh that I have that I prayed for God to take away and he won't? I want all of you to have that too. I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. But I think what Paul's acknowledging is this idea that The 12 disciples, in a very literal sense, in Greek culture, the reason that a disciple is called a disciple is because you literally follow in the footsteps of the person you're learning from. If they walk somewhere, you walk behind them, you watch what they do, and you do what they do. You are a disciple of that person. 
And so to be a disciple of Christ meant literally, if Christ is walking that way, I'm going to walk that way right behind him, and I'm going to do the things that he does. You see this in the Gospels. Jesus goes out, he starts healing people, and so the disciples then, later on, are sent out to go heal people. So Jesus talks about driving out the sick and driving out demons and healing the sick. And and then that's exactly what the disciples are expected to do is to follow in Jesus's footsteps. And so if Paul is also following in the footsteps of Jesus and of the twelve, and then the church in Philippi and Ephesus and Colossae and all these other cities that Paul visited are imitating Paul, who's imitating the apostles who imitate Jesus. You start to see where I'm going with this. So the idea behind church then, the whole reason we have ordained pastors is not to somehow say, well, this person has everything together because let me tell you I don't. It's to say this person has learned from someone who 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 2,000 years ago learned from the disciples who walked with the embodied Son of God. And this person, this pastor, this ordained person in whatever church you find yourself, their job is not to come up with new things and to find new ways of explaining stuff and to come up with new theologies. That's not my job. My job is to point back to Jesus and to say he is the one we follow. We follow his example, and I'm doing my best to follow the example set for me, and I hope that you will follow me as I follow that example. So what it means to, to lead in a church is to, to follow Christ so closely that if people are following you, they find him. And then we read about Abram or Abraham, same guy, different name, and the covenant that was made for him. I don't say with him because Abraham didn't really agree or commit to anything, which is a good thing because none of us could keep up our end of that bargain. But yet you have God showing up in terrible darkness with the split halves of a few sacrificial animals laying on the ground and you see this fire pot, the smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between these dead animals. And you may ask yourself, what in the world does that even mean? When you take the animals and you split the animals that way and you pass between that kind of ritual thing that they've got going on, that was a way of making covenant. That was a way of saying, I commit, I I make covenant, I make a vow to keep up my end of what we're doing right now. And so for Abraham or Abram to be afraid of that and to not go between there is Abram acknowledging, I can't keep my end of the bargain here. And then in the midst of the Old Testament law that we think of being this exacting, rule-based, follow-the-law-or-else kind of God. Even back at the very beginning of Genesis, you have God saying, Abram, don't worry. You don't have to keep your end of the bargain, but I will pass through here. I will keep my promises. I will do this for you. I will keep this covenant even if you can't. That's grace. 
That's the, the holy God saying, Abram, don't worry. I know you can't keep your end of the bargain, but I can do this for you. I will save the world through your descendants. I will send my son someday. And through your descendant, my son, one day, the entire nation, the entire world will be blessed through what I'm committing to do today. And so it it encourages me that now when I read scripture, I can read the Old Testament and I can say, where is the God of grace? Where is the self-sacrificing, other-loving, all-including gracious God in this passage? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is always gracious. God is always loving. God is always self-sacrificing. And so we look for hints of that. We look for hints of that God who will be, and that God who is, and that God who was. And we can find that in the Old Testament. We can find that in the example that has been set for us by the saints that we've known in our lives. In all things, in modern day, New Testament, Old Testament, the Gospels themselves, we look for a God who is self-sacrificing and gracious. And we're invited to be that also. And so as I go through this Lenten season, this, this period of kind of self-reflection, the question I'm kind of asking myself is, how well am I following that example? How well am I being a disciple of a God who is gracious and other-giving and loving In what ways have I fallen short of that? How do I need to change? What do I need to pray for in myself? And when I sit in the quiet and I listen and I hear an answer to that question from God and he points out gently but still painfully sometimes an area in my life where this right here, that needs to change. Let's let's work on that. I know that it's not out of condemnation or anger that he points that out. It's because he wants to see me grow. He wants to see me follow in his footsteps and to be like him. And for everything he points out, he's also willing to help me change. He's also willing to help me be better, to fix what is broken in my own soul. We're never left to our own devices. And that's why when I I come to a table in repentance for communion, I don't feel like I have to crawl on my knees to the table because I know that there is grace waiting for me here. The author of Hebrews says we can enter the throne of God with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's not about you, but sometimes I I feel in need. (laughs) And when I feel that way, I can enter the very throne room of God with confidence to receive mercy and find grace and help. And so that's why I, I love doing this every week. I love coming in repentance every week to hopefully be able to get out of my own way and find that grace that God offers me.